Hi, I'm Natalia Swanson. And I'm Marie DeRocher. And this is season two of Conservators Combating Climate Change, a podcast about the intersectionality of sustainability and its implications for cultural heritage. This podcast is sponsored by the American Institute for Conservation's Emerging Conservation Professionals Network and is generously supported by the Department of Art Conservation at the University of Delaware in honor of Bruno Pouillot, an incredible mentor, educator, and human. Today, we're continuing with the second half of the conversation we released last week with Dr. Trinidad Rico and Dr. Victoria Ramanzoni, who are helping Marie and I understand the overlap between uh, really three distinct but interconnected fields, environmental conservation, heritage conservation, and critical heritage studies. So here in part two, we're picking right up where the conversation left off. Um, and Victoria is responding to a question that Natalia previously posed. And this question is, what strategies have they seen that are effective for shifting authority from uh, sort of professionalized practices to other approaches? All of this stuff is very resonating with the environmental conservation side of things. So we have had this discussion in terms of like power experts voices, uh, at least for a couple of decades, I can tell you this. And I can tell you that many have acknowledged that this is a, a problem uh, and that no one has the exclusive right to make calls in, in, in terms of like conserving or preserving a particular landscape. You're going to find that there's a wide repertoire of articles, uh, papers, books speaking to the problem. And even when we have opened the forum, to all kinds of communities of all kinds of different actors, not just indigenous or traditional, but all kinds of different actors. We still struggle uh, to implement the idea. Environmental conservation studies, they have uh, a lot to bear on in terms of fields of institutional design. So we work a lot in terms of how do you design an institution and a set of policies that are gonna be able to prevent degradation and be sustainable over certain long term. So we work a lot in this frame of institutional design framework. And this is where this uh, plurality of voices has had the major impact. This is where we're actually making the change. So how do we think about institutions that manage natural resources in a way that is pluralistic? And this is where we see a lot of policies that look into what is known as co-management or co-participatory uh, co management or collaborative management. Um, so you see governments instituting these policies left and wide, and this has been happening for at least 15 to 20 years. Uh, Indonesia is a good example of a country that has embraced this co-management approach. And co-management basically means devolving the authority in terms of managing resources to the local communities. So sharing the pie, I would say. So the government has jurisdiction over environments and communities have concrete jurisdiction over environments that are close to them. But this is all done within a very predetermined framework in terms of what this co-management should look like. So there's this idea that communities are going to participate on an egalitarian fashion, that going to be ways of solving conflicts and there's going to be 
ways of dealing with potential confrontation that may result. This is a really um, interesting and important point about decentralizing power to local stakeholders, but with the understanding that certain humanitarian needs need to be met. I really like the idea when I'm thinking about and considering how we as heritage conservators should update the way that we think about ethics and morals of contemporary community-oriented conservation practice. But I guess this all has to be considered with, it, with the understanding that power is still biased toward institutions and organizations and governing bodies, right? This is all based on very, uh, as we were saying before, um, political uh, notions or models of what conservation should look like. And when I say conservation here, I'm talking about environmental, but I'm assuming that this is also applicable to heritage conservation. So there's these notions and there's these models about what conservation should be about, this idea of preservation, which are heavily contested on environmental studies, uh, because it's very hard to say what uh, should be preserved, what preservation means when you have an environment that is highly dynamic. And we don't talk so much about environments, we talk about landscapes. This idea that there's no environment that hasn't been touched by human action. So we start up with these like prepackaged institutional models that are supposed to be co-participatory, that are supposed to incorporate indigenous communities. And we're supposing that these communities actually want to do the same that we want to do as managers, which is preserve or restore a particular landscape. And this is where we open up a can of worms in terms of what kind of land, what kind of landscape are we thinking about? And this is where we talk about values, which I think is very is slightly different to what you guys were discussing. But um, this is where we find this confrontation between different ideas about the future and ideas about what should be restored and how. Before we move on, I want to highlight your use of the word dynamic, because of course, all heritage is dynamic and constantly undergoing interpretation. And if we recognize this, then we start to shift how we think about our roles as stewards. But uh, Victoria, you just used the word restoration, which is a highly contested word in our community. So can you clarify what you mean when you use this term in relation to landscape conservation? Well, again, it's yet another one of those very heavily loaded terms. Uh, so it depends on how you approach it. This is where my field, my um, environmental studies becomes more technical. So we think about restoration in a highly technical way. So restoration basically means that go back to a prior state of a particular ecosystem or a particular habitat. And this is, uh, again, another problem. I can tell you that technically, not just theoretically, restoration is a challenge for environmental studies. We go back to thinking our landscape as highly dynamic environments that are constantly changing. And Let's go back to thinking of landscapes at, as being completely immersed and touched by human action. So you want to restore a particular landscape. What moment in time are you planning to go back to? What is your template for constructing or restoring this particular landscape? 
And what is the moment in time that you want to talk about when this landscape is constantly changing? And this is a technical problem that we run into. Um, so depending on how rich your data sets are, you can paint a picture of how an ecological landscape looked like at a particular time frame. But again, this implies that you actually understand variability. You understand the different ways in which variability operate. You actually understand that landscape are not stable or they are not in a fixed state, but you have to work with that variability in order to understand how an ecosystem or a particular ecological habitat actually behaves. And again, highly complex, uh, highly difficult. You have to be able to identify all these different processes. You have to be able to identify all these different compounds that interact and give shape to a landscape just to be able to figure out how that ecosystem or that, how that habitat actually works. And we're not even talking about humans here. So technically, become, uh, technically restoration becomes a very difficult thing to do. So if I go back to thinking about restoration as a loaded term from a theoretical point, from a more critical standpoint, uh, restoration has a really strong connotation in terms of going back to a prior state. And culturally, I can tell you that actually really freaked me out. Why is that? It assumes that we can have clear representations of cultures and communities that we can actually define what a culture is. And we can say that a culture has a particular tradition. And we know that tradition is an invented, invented term. Tradition constantly changes again. So trying to say that a community should look like in a particular way becomes an exercise of power itself. So again, this is a very loaded, very complicated issue. And you're gonna find from the technical side, there's a lot of um, discussion in terms of what is the baseline that you're working with? Uh, what, how do you establish that there's, there was change? How do you actually accommodate future change? And I'm not even including the social dimension here. And if I can, take that point home. Yeah. First of all, I want to point out that this, everything that Victoria just said is why I think that she's a closet cultural heritage expert. The crossovers <laughs> are so clear I'm, in some yeah. of the ways that we, 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 we parse out this problem. Yeah. So yes, I want to reiterate the word restoration has become a sort of taboo in cultural heritage and conservation as well, right? Like it's a really tricky word. Yep, absolutely. In, in my line of work, we are so heavily invested in the contemporary state of well-being of a site or practice and its people. There's a lot less room to worry about what it looked like originally, right? This is not true of all branches of heritage. This is a very specific concern in, in critical heritage studies. And for those of us coming out of, of an ethnographic tradition, our relationship to time has changed. Our relationship to change has changed. And in this new platform, we take a step back from issuing praise or criticism about how much a place has evolved. And instead we have a completely new concern, which is you know, the baggage that informs contemporary decisions of what is and what is, what is not of value, right? To a particular context. So maybe if we ever use the word restoration now, perhaps it could be used in the sense of restoring a site to its rightful owners. Or, or voices of authority, right? But it's no longer it's no longer used with, with its original intention. 
this reminds me of what Victoria was talking about, like in Cuba with this, this aspect of sustainability as like the well, the physical well-being of the people who are like living in a place now. And I think that's something that we don't usually take into consideration. I mean, we do, but but it's not something we're actively talking about, you know, how are we prioritizing the feelings and experiences of people like living in the present when we're thinking about the restoration of things to a to a prior state cultural heritage object. This um, goes back to our discussion about authority and power and voices, right? Uh, who has the right to say what? So as we're discussing restoration from a more institutional or environmental side, when we're talking about these co-management schemes or uh, how we should manage resources, there's this idea of devolving power to the local communities. But as I was saying before, this is based on the idea that local communities know best and that they are uh, in closer relationship to nature, so they are going to be able to protect resources. And of course, this is a fallacy and uh, there's a lot of research that speaks to the contrary. But still, you see countries and uh, across the world that are actually pushing for things like that. Uh, in Indonesia, that is very clear with uh, movements towards restoring or socializing agriculture on, or fisheries, right? So you see this push from the government uh, across multiple legal instruments that are trying to devolve power to communities. And with this idea of devolving power to communities, that communities are supposed to be able to manage resources, it doesn't mean that that goes with a package of uh, funding that is going to help them continue managing resources over time. Aside from that, there's this very naive idea that there's no struggle for power within communities, which is, we know that is not true, that cultural or traditional communities are riddled with issues of power and authority. And there's this very archaic way of defining traditional culture. Um, so it is supposed that restoration, this going back to the past is the way to go because that's the way that our ancestors used to manage the land. And we know for multiple examples that that is not the case. We have many examples of like indigenous communities actually overfishing or overexploiting resources. So these are all fictions. And why I'm talking about fictions, why I'm saying all of this is, I think the common thread between our two fields is that the two fields are actually struggling to come up with a set of terms that can help them work and act upon the real world. And these terms are to some largely stand defined by international organizations like the UN. In my field, I can speak to like things like ecosystem services that are clearly defined on the millennial ecosystem assessment from 2004. Um, so before that, um, ecosystem services were used, but there wasn't a clear cut definition. So the UN put together this report. Now you can see ecosystem services everywhere. But by choosing that term, ecosystem services, which is um, defined as the goods and services that we get from nature, we actually are embracing a particular interpretation of how we see nature. And this is a very commodified or economic way of looking at nature. And I think you guys are seeing similar processes of like claiming authority through the use of terms that are, are sold as being somewhat neutral terms, but 
these are terms that are heavily embedded on a very um, capitalistic way of looking at human environmental interactions. Um, and this using these terms, and I think this is the part that is the most interesting part, at least for me, uh, implies a political stance in a way that you're actually um, endorsing some particular interpretations of how you should interact with nature or how culture should interact with natures. And these interpretations are heavily loaded, heavily biased. And they are one potential way of looking at things, but there's many other ways in which we can look at the relationship between humans and their environment or their landscape. I think, you know, in that way, uh, there's a common thread between your discipline and uh, the field that I work in. Yes. Yeah, what you're talking about certainly applies to heritage conservation when we think about how biased our professional community is toward cultural property. And this is stated explicitly in the majority of our professional codes of ethics, which of course is a reflection of what you're saying about how heritage has been interpreted through a capitalistic and consumer lens. This is really problematic for me because of course we can easily change our language to say cultural heritage instead of cultural property, but what's the value in changing our language when this bias forms um, kind of our professional frameworks and dictates our practices um, and reflects our values? So I really struggle with how I'm supposed to undermine what I see as um, a real limitation and narrowness of our field um, and a real point of exclusion when it's reflective of, you know, a broad societal norm. I think we should pivot to talk about how um, in heritage sector, the work being done in regards to natural and human-induced crisis has been very responsive, which of course does not address the inherently unsustainable aspects of the work we're currently doing. So how do we find balance between mitigation and prevention and reaction? I guess I'll take, I'll get started. <laughs> um, no, it's just that this is another one of these really great points of conversions um, between Victoria and my work, not just because we both worked in Indonesia, which is quite interesting in and of itself, and then we both ended up at Rutgers, but um, there's something about our training that is, um, that, that was going to make us intersect on this subject anyways. Um, we're both strong advocates I think I can say that Victoria can speak for you as well in saying that we're, we're strong advocates for understanding uh, the interaction of a people with their landscape in their terms before safeguarding programs are devised or launched, right? And this is like a very important emphasis I want to make here. Like too often um, safeguarding is, is concocted separately from the social, cultural, political, and spiritual context in which it is supposed to operate. And then it tries to insert itself in that context. And that, of course, will fail to do more damage than good. And in, in my disciplinary and my field's language, then that's what undermines the sustainability, right? The sustainability of a safeguarding measure. Um, so one of the things I'm, I'm a big advocate for is to step away from, from the truths that a disciplinary approach holds dear to consider whether our methodologies are ethically deployed, 
right? So like there's like a whole kind of project management aspect of this that has to be reversed. And that we work very hard at reversing. Like at what point does consultation happen? It can happen at so many points. Um, where has it happened? Where should it happen? The Victoria has already introduced so many of these fantastic keywords that get just pushed around in our fields like co-participation, co-management, co-construction, collaboration, right? There's so many iterations of this idea, but the whole point is to bring this humility to the, the sequencing of events that need to happen in order for something to be, at least for the moment, successful. So this collaboration, conservation, it's, it's very interesting how these two terms are used in both fields. Uh, and I think they both kind of imply the same, though they have been through different theoretical trajectories. Uh, but I think the key term is what Trinidad was actually saying. Uh, so all these templates for including others, for including stakeholders, these are templates that are designed by your uh, institutional overlords. These are not templates that are designed by the communities or they are not coming from the communities themselves. Few cases you find in the environmental world where actually the community is the one that is creating the initiative. So how do we change that? How do we kick the board? So participation, it's a full participation, not participation as defined by uh, a particular template. And this, I think, is where the key to opening the door to other stakeholders uh, plays out. This is where you find initiatives like STEM and diversity inclusion as really game changers if they are done correctly in a proper light. So by, by that, I say, for example, in the environmental field, we recognize the wealth of knowledge that is coming from multiple cultures. We have been working with traditional ecological knowledge systems for at least 10 years now. People are moving into integrating different systems of knowledge, co-production of knowledge, like Trinidad was saying. We're trying to figure that out. But this is just one step into inclusion. Inclusion means that we're actually fostering and or enabling people, giving capabilities to communities so they can actually take the reins and become the leaders of action. And this is where you see STEM programs as being the seed of change, you know, if they are done properly. When you guys are talking about risk management and uh, the priorities in terms of disaster preparedness and mitigation, and things like that. Uh, my field is a very reactive field. Uh, there's a lot of proaction that is actually happening now. But again, uh, this proaction is in terms of the dangers that are scoped and the tools that we have now for scoping those dangers. And it changes, it's a moving target. It, it varies a lot depending on the amount of knowledge that we have. We go back again to who defines the future? Who defines who is at risk? What are the criteria for that? And when do we intervene? Which I think those are key points that Trinidad was also saying. Um, and I just wanna conclude by saying that at least in environmental conservation, we see this duplicity play out constantly. Uh, there's this duplicity about trying to secure the future for future generations and making all these commitments and statements, but not following up with action. So this is where we talk about the sustainability of our, our own actions, our own footprints in terms of how we're action. If there is any kind of 
connection between actions and uh, ideas. And this is where you see the duplicity at fall. This is where you see the betrayal at fall in terms of these discourses of commodification and how corporations are actually appropriating these green mentalities and this idea of sustainability for the future. Uh, this is where things become way more cynical and this is where things become way more political when you start looking at what is motivating conservation and where, and what are the motivations behind the pushes for conservation in certain parts of the world and not others. Yeah, Victoria, I just want to also be on the same page as you very emphatically. There's now a pile of literature in heritage studies that demonstrates without a shred of doubt that the determination of what is at risk and even the famous state of conservation of something that a lot of this decision-making in these institutional overlords, as you were saying, hinge on, is an extremely politically informed decision, right? And it has to do with ensuring access to a place. It definitely is, is hinging on this duplicity you bring up that's so spot on for us as well, right? Like the separation of rhetoric and action and how different they are. And I think what we're all calling for is for recognizing that there's a difference between identifying an alternative, quote unquote, alternative voice, and then letting that alternative voice lead. One thing is identifying it. And I think for a long time, this kind of post-colonial turn has it managed to ride out very comfortably the idea that in just recognizing alter alterity, we were already doing our job. But the job is a lot, it's a much, much stronger commitment to let that alterity become normalized as the non-alterity, right? As the norm, as another center of gravity. And that's a lot harder again, because we are dealing with these institutional languages. To take it back to the first question that Victoria answered, I'm sure that what you were also saying was that you spend a lot of time in the classroom disarming what people think they know about sustainability because it has been, it has been pushed so strongly by popular discourse, which is coming down from things like the UN, the same way that popular discourse in an understanding of heritage preservation and safeguarding and conflict is coming to me and my students from UNESCO, right? Like we're almost, we share a lot of these institutional um, So many parallels. So many parallels, yeah. right? And so much to learn from each other. And I always think that um, nature conservation is, is, is way ahead on the game than we are and I don't know maybe you guys feel the other way around but um, Victoria is shaking her head no <laughs> um, but yeah I think I think there's there's something about there's a reason why you're talking to two anthropologists right I think there's something about the primacy of ethics and the reflexivity the self-awareness that we're supposed to have the humility that we're supposed to bring to the table in, in the areas in which we work in order to construct knowledge from the ground up uh, in order to recognize mistakes, in order to retract things that have happened that shouldn't have happened, to make amends. Um, there's, I think there's a, you didn't accidentally land on two anthropologists. I think there's a reason why we work <laughs> well together in this conversation and why we're making these interventions into the field. Um, we just, we're coming from a very specific vision. Yeah. I yeah. do want to say the road ahead sometimes looks really bleak because we've just suddenly seen all these things that perhaps we wouldn't have seen if we had been trained 50 years ago, right? Or if we had yeah. dug in a hole and com were complete believers and we had surrendered to these global discourses in which everything was going to be fine. Um, yeah. But the road ahead it looks bumpy, but there's so many resources. There's so much interdisciplinarity. There's so many things to read. 
if there's students listening to this, read across disciplines, get out of the comfort zone of your disciplinary canons, look for methods in other disciplines. Where I think we're living through a time when we can, both Victoria and I can, can train students with a lot of freedom outside of these canons. We can actually ask them to use mixed methods. We can ask them to completely revamp the way the fields are thinking about the problem. Um, you can, professors are more accessible now. You can, you can reach out to people working across the globe. You can work in these areas of the world perhaps you wouldn't have been able to work before. So it's very exciting to get into these fields with, with, with open eyes, right? And open mind. Um, it's also very easy to get into the hole and get into your rabbit hole and not pay attention to anything. But if you, but if you want to take on the challenge, I think that a lot of the resources in this day and age are right there, right? Yeah. The, you can make your career whatever you want. You can make your impact whatever you want. So there's something about being creative in academia now um, in a way in which we could never do it before that's, that's up for grabs, right? Yeah. yeah, certainly I would say, I mean, uh, in these cases, I don't condone the idea of that ignorance is please. I, I believe that knowing is better. Um, and I think we made such a, a headway. If I look at both fields, I think, you know, environmental studies have been kind of in the spotlight. So if, if you look at what this had done to people, you see people way more emboldened. So you see people changing their behaviors, people taking action. Uh, and this is the normal public, like all audiences are responding to climate change. They are making life changing decisions. Um, so yes, I think there is there's a lot of hope for the future, and I think that being able to talk about what the future should look like, it's a luxury that we didn't have decades ago when we blindly were consuming water that was poisoned or eating our meats that were coming from non-sustainable sources, right? Uh, being able to deal with the question, we're much better prepared for that. And People, and I think, you know, are asking for more accountability and there's a lot of participation. I think what we've seen in the past year, at least with the Black, Black Lives Matter movement and all these like mobilization. So you see citizenship taking over power and at least on the environmental field, you see a lot of applications, you see a lot of developments that are seeking uh, citizen knowledge. So they are using citizens as scientists to move the field forward. In that way, I, I can only think about a future that we're building together. I disagree profoundly with all these science fiction movies where there's no positive future. I, I'm mesmerized that we cannot imagine a, a, a wonderful positive future as a society. And I think that is a wonderful task. That is a wonderful exercise to do. Uh, thinking about a, a future where um, there's integration and there's diversity in an organic way. Oh my gosh, I love that. It gives me hope. Yeah, I'm, I'm really what a wonderful way to end the episode. Thank you again to to both of you. It's It's been fabulous. I look forward to future conversations. Yeah, this is just the beginning. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, don't forget to tune in again next week. Um, and also, if you want to send us questions or keep the conversation going, you know where to find us uh, at our email address that you can always find in the show notes. Thanks so much.